Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. I got to do better than that. Good morning. morning. All right. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church and the extra anointed service this morning, the 11 o'clock. I say it is extra anointed because apparently there are a number of people that took an extra chance to go to the beach. So um, (laughs) I love it. I'm just kidding. So um, this morning we are going to dive right in here because we have a lot to cover. Um, so we, uh, we've been going through uh, the book of Revelation in our series called Victory Unveiled. And so this morning, we've come to what might be the most popular passage in Revelation and potentially in the entire Bible known as Armageddon. So lots of people think of lots of different things, potentially, when you hear the word Armageddon, right? Um, so the first thing that comes to your mind, it might be Bruce Willis's face, Right? Or Steven Tyler's creepy voice. You guys know what I'm talking about? Movie from the 90s? Armageddon? <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Am I alone in this? Yeah, all right, all right, all right. Creepiest song ever, right? Creepiest song ever written. I could stay awake just to hear you breathing, watch you smile while you were sleeping. You know what I'm talking about? That is a creepy, that is like restraining order, order quality lyrics, right? Right? Like, you watch, you haven't seen the movie, you think just like from the picture of the video or like the screens and all this stuff, you might think that like, you know, it's, it's Bruce Willis protecting his daughter from Steven Tyler's creepiness, you know? It's weird. Anyway, so um, again, if everything that I have said is just confusing to you and you're like, what are you talking about? I'm talking about that movie in Armageddon um, that was like Steven Tyler and Liv Tyler and Bruce Willis. And then you find out that the daughter in the movie is actually Steve, Steven Tyler's daughter, right? And then you actually think the world's got to end soon because this is crazy. So anyway, spoiler alert, that movie has nothing to do with what we're about to read, even though it is named Armageddon. In fact, our modern day understanding of what the Bible actually says about things like the end of the world has been so influenced by popular culture that most people don't know what is true and what's, well, just basically, you know, people sort of dream until the dream comes true, right? Get it? Get it, Aerosmith? Come on! Wake up! Anyway, so, um, you know, they can dream on all they want. I promise I'm almost done. So, the question is, though, what does this book actually say, and what does it actually mean? Right? So, for the past few months, we've been walking through this amazing God-breathed masterpiece, And we've been doing it verse by verse to see what it actually says. So it turns out that it is extremely encouraging and extremely relevant for us today because while Stephen Tyler and Aerosmith have struggled to stay relevant over the years, um, Revelation doesn't have to, right? So what is Armageddon? That's the question. What is Armageddon? Where is Armageddon, and when is Armageddon, and who is involved in Armageddon, and why is it even important? So we're going to tackle all of those questions this morning as we walk through Revelation chapter 16, verse 12 through 16. But before we do, I'm going to dive into a little context so we understand what we're about to read. Okay, so if it's your first time this morning, um, it may feel again like you are being just sort of inundated by a fire hydrant um, and you're just overwhelmed with information, but I promise just open your mouth, take some big gulps and you're going to get a lot in um, and just kind of lean in here. So give you a quick recap of this. The book of Revelation is actually a letter that the apostle John wrote to the early churches of the first century during an extreme time of political upheaval and persecution. But this is no ordinary letter. It's the prophetic account of a very real supernatural experience that the Apostle John had 2,000 years ago. And so through this letter and the Holy Spirit, we're invited to experience this very real, very relevant revelation for ourselves today. So John is taken up into the Spirit as God pulls back the physical veil and he reveals who is actually in control of all eternity, of all that's going on then in their lives then, and all that's happening in our lives today. And so uh, it's a letter that's designed to encourage the church in difficult circumstances and to show them that Christ has the ultimate victory. No matter what it might seem like in the world around them then or us today, Jesus is in control. He is king. And so it's the reminder 
that if you are in Christ, you have been rescued, redeemed, equipped, empowered, and commissioned to bring salvation to those who are drowning in a sinful and chaotic world. And it's important to remember that this letter has a specific context. It's written to a specific people at a specific time with a specific purpose, which means it has a specific meaning. And the only way to understand that meaning is to understand its context. In other words, this is not just a letter that was written to the first century church for the sake of passing it on like it's some kind of time castle set like in a wall somewhere and passing it on to a generation that's alive on the earth just before Jesus returns thousands of years later. That's not what we're reading, right? This letter was written to them in the first century. Its relevance to us is only applied through the lens of how relevant it was for them then. So we can't make it mean something to us now that it couldn't have meant to them then. All right, so when we realize how directly applicable and relevant it was for them then, then we're gonna also treasure this vision for us today. So in fact, this letter has been digested and cherished by God's people for almost two millennia as a major source of encouragement and hope for all believers. And so the history that's attached to this letter is, is just as encouraging as the letter itself. Honestly, it's only recently been incorrectly understood by some as an irrelevant book about the future. But you are no longer those people, right? Because as I've mentioned before, if your theology categorizes any book of the Bible as irrelevant to you, it's time to question and change your theology. Amen? So, the reality is, again, that this letter has always been a major revelation of truth, hope, and courage for God's beloved people in every generation. The thing about Revelation is, though, that its structure is recursive. In other words, it, like a book like Genesis or the Gospels and most of the uh, other letters in the New Testament, they're all linear in their progression of events or thoughts and themes, right? But Revelation and other apocalyptic literature in the Bible, often circles back on events and major themes over and over and over again, right? It's developing those events and those themes from different angles and different perspectives. It uses visions to expand and expound upon particular issues and events both the, of both the past, present, and future. And so we're just over halfway through this letter, and we've already seen the end of the world and Christ's return happen multiple times, okay? Just in case you were wondering, that's only going to happen once, right? So every time we see it in the Bible, though, it's really intense, but it's not necessarily as impossible to understand as many people think it is because it's preceded by an entire Bible of context and history, which brings clarity, color, and meaning to its content, and so we're leaning into the Holy Spirit, we're letting Scripture interpret Scripture, and we're worshiping the Lord with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Okay? You guys with me on this? All right, so if it feels like you're just sort of overwhelmed by information and it's all over your head, don't worry, it's not the end of the world. Ha! Anybody? All right. Couldn't help it. So... Seriously, though, this is not, uh, or this is a lot to take in, right? So, like, I want you to uh, pray. I want to encourage you to lean in. I want to encourage you to ask the Lord for wisdom and understanding in all of this and lean into relationships with people in our church. We want to get to know you. We want to walk with you on your journey with Jesus. In a lot of ways, I'm summarizing stuff that we've been walking through for months now. And so, uh, ultimately, though, I want you to realize that we all need to hear this. This is not just some empty philosophies or theor theoretical conjectures or opinions that are set forth from John Allen. This is God's word, and it's directly applicable to our everyday life. And so, last week, we kicked off chapter 16, um, and an, which kicks off another one of those recursive cycles, or the theological term is recapitulation, Right? It, it, just think recap when you hear recapitulation. So um, it's a, it recapitulates or recaps the time frame between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And we've seen it with three series of seven judgments, three series of judgments. We saw it in the seven seals that were opened, 
And then we saw it in the seven trumpets that were blown. And then chapter 16 presents the same time frame through another series of seven judgments in the seven bowls that are poured out. And they all describe different aspects and increasing levels of God's judgment that take place during the same time period. They reveal the common themes of history during this inter-advent period. Advent means appearing, right? And so it's the first appearing of Christ and the second appearing of Christ. In between that is the inter-advent period. And so these reveal the common themes of history during this inter-advent period. And they describe the struggles and troubles that plague the world with corruption, death, Famine, poverty, disease, pollution, and demonic torment. That's why this book is so intense, because it describes this stuff from with, with using like apocalyptic images and visuals and visions. And so God is the one in this who is actually unleashing these judgments upon every sphere of creation that's been affected by human sin. That's hard for many people to grasp until you realize that he is totally just in doing this. Like remember humanity was originally given dominion over creation to take care of it. So each judgment exposes our failure because we tried to rule in God's place rather than by his authority. Right? That's the picture that we see in, in the Garden of Eden. And so each of these judgments reveals the true nature of this fallen world like handwriting on the walls of creation that are declaring that things aren't as they should be, right? Revelation is a wake-up call given to the church as an encouragement to those who have been awakened to new life through this gospel of grace that they've been and given this gospel glasses by the Holy Spirit to see and interpret the writing on the wall for the rest of creation, and so it unveils the reality that the only thing that's keeping Jesus from coming back in his full glory to eradicate wickedness and inaugurate heaven on earth, the only thing stopping him, the only thing keeping him, the only reason you draw breath on this side of heaven right now is his mercy towards those who would still repent and receive his grace. That's it. Kind of puts things in perspective and puts the priority of, kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven in its rightful place, doesn't it? So it also, though, reveals, especially in these seven bowls of chapter 16, that this world will not last forever, and time is getting shorter and shorter. So last week, we looked at the first five of the seven bowls of wrath, and we saw the scope and scale of what's being uh, presented in this series of visions, and and that what it is is all-consuming. What we're seeing is an all-consuming vision of judgment. This isn't just partial judgment. The implication here is total and comprehensive. This is like a big picture, 35,000-foot view of decreation. We're seeing elements of both the seal and trumpet judgments in these bowl judgments because the view that we're given here is, again, all-encompassing. So the implication of the all three series of recursive judgments is that they will increase in their intensity, right? Although that intensity may be spread out across the globe and it may be more intense in different times and places, what we're seeing here, as I've mentioned before in this series, is one of the most profound prophetic images that we're given in Scripture of the end times, and that is... um, that of a woman experiencing birth pains as she longs for deliverance and the promised child. That's all, that saturates the Bible and it's heavily leaned upon in Revelation. So like the contractions of creation increase in scope and intensity as we approach active labor and delivery. The Bible's packed with this meta-narrative, like a prophetic framework that undergirds what's being presented here through these recursive judgments on the earth. And so this, uh, this morning, we're going to see the sixth bowl of God's judgment poured out, which reveals Armageddon and the end of the world as we know it. And for the past 2,000 years of Christian history, every generation has thought that they were the final generation. They have all speculated that we are probably the last ones, right? Every one of them. At least some from every generation place themselves directly in this timeline as being the last. And honestly, like, look, they were able to look around them and read themselves right into this text. 
And in some ways, they were not wrong. Neither was their way of reading the Bible wrong. In fact, we very well may be today the generation that transitions from contractions to active labor and receive the return of the promised Savior and King. That is highly possible as we read this. So as we read through this, it shouldn't be too difficult to read our generation right into this text. However, it's not up to us to figure out whether that's the case or not. That's not the point. And anyone who's trying to figure this out or says they figured out the day and the date and the time when Jesus is going to come back and the end of the world is going to take place, well, they're just wrong. Period. They're wrong. And anybody that's setting dates, don't listen to them. Because they're wrong. When the disciples asked Jesus when this day would happen and take place, his response to them was that it was not given even to him to know the day and the hour. Matthew 24, verse 36 through 37 says this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3 says this, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So we're not trying to put any dates on the calendar here, right? And anyone who's trying to figure that out has totally missed the point of this letter. And so what we want to do here. Um, is get to the point of this letter. Like, identify what matters and why it's being written to his church and his people. But there are some things that are clearly revealed to us in this passage, and they're really practical, and they're really encouraging. And so, again, what is Armageddon? Where is Armageddon? When is Armageddon? And who is involved in Armageddon? So, I'm going to read through this passage, and then we'll drop back and we'll walk through it together. And here's the main thing that I want, to get, want you to get this morning. It's a common theme throughout this letter. So if you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. There is a spiritual war raging all around you right now. Armageddon isn't just about a future battle. It's about the end of the present war. There's a spiritual war raging all around you right now. Armageddon isn't just about a future battle. It's about the end of the present war war. And so in the words of Francis Schaeffer, how then shall we live? Right? Revelation 16, starting verse verse 12, going to read through verse 16. You guys ready? The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. All right. So let's walk through this together. Uh, So many people only read this again as a physical battle that's set sometime in a distant future at a specific battleground known as the Plain of Megiddo. Right? And that is actually a place. It's a real plain called Megiddo. In fact... It's through that futuristic lens that so many try to interpret the events of our day as though they are building to this final battle that will only begin in a distant or not-so-distant future. In some ways, this is true. But what I want to clarify for you this morning is that what is portrayed for us here is the finality of a spiritual war that has been raging for centuries. In other words, if you're waiting for this war to begin then you're not paying attention and it's time to wake up because it's been happening since Jesus was resurrected. So although this war doesn't manifest physically in many ways, it's ultimately a spiritual war and it's playing out all around you. Look at verse 12. 
Drop back. It says this. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So again, context is key here, right? You will need both spiritual, biblical, and historical eyes to get this. And praise God, we've got all of the above, and we also have coffee. So feel free to get some of that. We'll be good to go. Can't miss. So, verse 12. It gives us, this verse gives us what the sixth bowl does, and then verse 13 through 16 gives us details on how it plays out. So what it does is dry up the Euphrates River so that kings from the east can cross it. So what does that mean? Is it talking about China? Talking about Russia? Is it talking about First Street? Right? Like, what's it talking about? Well, let's, script, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture, okay? Let's even let Revelation interpret Revelation. Remember, these judgments are recursive, and the sixth bowl is echoing the sixth trumpet of Revelation 9, right? And so there, there we saw four angels who had been bound at, drumroll, the Euphrates, okay? And then they're suddenly released, almost, as if they couldn't get past the Euphrates River, and then suddenly that boundary wasn't an issue anymore, as though it suddenly, I don't know, dried up. You seeing this? And then in that sixth trumpet, what we saw from chapter 9 revealed an army of 200 million going forth to kill one-third of mankind. And remember, this is all a vision of God's judgment on rebellious humanity, and we saw that that 200 million army were demonic. It was a vision of the demonic hordes. And so throughout the Bible, the drying up of waters is a picture of both God's deliverance for his people and judgment on his enemies. It's important. You need to get that. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, whenever we see waters being dried up, it is a picture of God's judgment on his enemies and deliverance of his people. For example, we saw it when he dried up the Red Sea and he delivered his people from the armies of Egypt. And also, uh, he used that to judge and destroy Egypt when the waters came crashing down on Pharaoh's army. They were oppressing his people. They had enslaved the people of God. And he used the drying up of waters to both deliver and judge Egypt and deliver his people from them. And so we saw it when he dried up the Red Sea. And then we also see it uh, when God delivers his people from the desert by drying up the Jordan River which allowed them to cross out of the desert into the promised land, right? But that also meant judgment time for the city of Jericho, which is the city that they took right after that, right? So again, deliverance of God's people from the desert in the wilderness season and judgment on his enemies. Then again, hundreds of years later, Israel is again held captive and oppressed, but this time in Babylon. And God, you see, you see these themes it's almost like they're recursive or something. Even in the Old Testament, they come up again. Hundreds of years later, Israel is again held captive and oppressed, this time in Babylon, and God dried up the Euphrates River so that King Cyrus and his army was able to cross and conquer the Babylonians. And Cyrus was then the king who delivered Israel from Babylon and set them free to return to their homeland. It's crazy. In fact, the context for the writing of the wall is because King Cyrus was right on the other side of that wall about to crush them. It's a whole other thing. Preach on that later. In both cases, Egypt and Babylon were oppressing the people of God, and God dries up waters to both deliver his people and judge their oppressors. So, what's the statement being made here in this passage? Follow this. The statement being made in this vision is that what happened in the Old Testament to one nation like ancient Babylon or Egypt on a local scale was a prophetic foretaste of what will happen to all nations on a global universal scale at the end of history via the Great War, okay? So this is a vision of God's judgment on the unbelieving world. That's what we're seeing here in Revelation. And it's comes via the drying up of the Euphrates River, which is ultimately going to lead as well to the deliverance of God's covenant people into the promised land. Okay? 
So now it's important to clarify that God's covenant people is not a reference to modern day, the modern day nation state of Israel. This is important. It's a reference to those who have received the grace of God by faith in Christ alone, whether they are Jew or Gentile. This is gonna affect the way that you read the news. This is gonna affect the way that you view history. It's gonna affect the way that you see what's happening in the world today, right? The nation state, the modern nation state of Israel is not God's covenant people. That does away with the point of the cross, if that's the case. All right, we need to understand that. This applies, this is the gospel, the whole point of the gospel, the whole point of the cross is that this is by faith, in, this is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so this is the whole point of the gospel, and this applies to both Jew and Gentile, and is not applicable to the nation state of Israel. That doesn't mean that we as a nation shouldn't support the modern nation state of Israel. Like, I'm all for that, right? So caveat. Right? If you're going to send me an email, don't be like, you're anti-Semitic. Like, that's not what this is. Um, but we don't support them as, a, we shouldn't support them as a country because they represent God's covenant people. That's not the right biblical logic. You follow me? All right, here we go. So this, that reality would have been especially significant for the first century church which was comprised of both Jewish and Gentile believers who were heavily persecuted by the Jewish synagogues. Got to get the context here, okay? Like we read a lot about that in chapters two and three of Revelation, right? So now there's nothing, again, that should be taken about that statement as anti-Semitic because that mess is demonic and should be condemned by all real Christians, amen? Which again, makes sense, right? Because what we're seeing in this passage is a spiritual war in which the actions of the wicked are orchestrated and fueled by the demonic. All right? So, let's keep reading. Verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. Okay. So, we're presented with a vision of the enemies of God and... Uh, the enemies of his people here. So we saw this counterfeit trinity presented in chapters 12 and 13 a few weeks ago, right? We saw this, uh, th th this counterfeit trinity. It's like a mocking of the true trinity. It's like a knockoff counterfeit that is the dragon, who is Satan, the beast, which is this satanically fueled socioeconomic system of power that opposes the gospel throughout generations. It's like the kingdom of the enemy that opposes the kingdom of God upon the earth. That's the beast. And then the false prophet, who is also known as the second beast in chapter 13 that we looked at, which is essentially this false religion that looks like the church. It looks like Christianity. It looks like a lamb, right, or a sheep, but it sounds like the dragon. That's what it says. Looks like the church, looks like the sheep, looks like a lamb, but it sounds like a dragon or Satan. Right? And it's like a propaganda machine for the beast or for the kingdom that actually opposes the kingdom of God. So the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, the counterfeit trinity, they are a counterfeit of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so this is what Satan does. He can't create. All he can do is pervert and take that which God created to be good and pervert it and twist it into something that is wicked. He takes seven, twists it into six. Seven, 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 twists it into six, six, six. Okay? Because that's what Satan does. So again, notice that this is highly spiritual and highly symbolic language. He's emphasizing aspects of this vision that he wants you to grab. Verse 13 uses the word mouth three times. That's significant. The mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet. The significance of deception is being highlighted here. Our battle is a battle of deception. Our war is fought and waged with twisted words, right? Again, there's the counterfeit of God's word here. It's being twisted by this unholy trinity and presented to you as good. And John sees three unclean spirits come out like frogs. It doesn't say frogs came out. 
But he says three unclean spirits or demonic spirits came out of this counterfeit trinity that were like frogs. That's important. But why frogs? That seems really weird, right? Frogs? Like Kermit, Kermit, Kermit? Kermit's cute. Like what's, what's the deal with frogs? Again, this is a reference to the second plague on Egypt. God said, let my people go or I'm sending frogs. That's what he said. And they didn't repent, and well, God sent frogs. And he sent them from the river. That's important. Slimy, hoppy, croaky, confusing frogs, and swarms of them. All right? He sent frogs into their homes and into their kitchens and ovens. The description in, in Exodus is insane. It's just sliming all over their food and their cookware and into their bedrooms and on their beds and covering their pillows with thick layers of disgusting, like, frog mucus or whatever you call that stuff. Right? Finally, Pharaoh's like, okay, I give up. I repent. He's like, stop the frogs. Just keep the frogs bound in the river and I will release your people. Sound familiar? And then all the frogs died where they were, and the whole place smelled horrible. Of course, after the smell went away, Pharaoh's like, you know, things aren't so bad now. And he didn't repent. Again, this is a foreshadowing of the situation that we have been in over and over again. This is what we see. So the plagues continued until the final death of the Most High King's son, uh, his firstborn son was killed in the last plague, and that's what brought deliverance to the people of God, which, side note, that's a prophetic foreshadowing of Christ in the Old Testament. It's beautiful and it's powerful, but that's also a nugget. What I want you to see here is that the vision of unclean frogs coming from the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet is a reminder of this plague and it's ultimately a description of highly demonic activity that's unleashed like a demonic horde upon the earth. They're getting into your food. They're getting into your life. They're in your bedroom. They're, they're on your pillow. They're in your world. They're everywhere. Unleashed like a demonic horde, twisting and deceiving and tormenting, leaving their slime all over this world. Verse 14. Just in case you weren't on board with the fact that they are, these frogs represent demons? Says, verse 14, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And so these demonic spirits target kings, rulers, and authorities to align themselves with the beast in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. Now they aren't the only ones targeted, Right? And this doesn't mean that all authoritative figures and politicians are evil or demonically influenced, though some of you may think that they are. Um, but it does mean that they are targeted. Right? And I think that any real Christian who operates in those environments would affirm and confirm that reality, and then they would ask for your prayers. Right? And Scripture tells us to pray for them, to honor them but to be aware that they are also indeed targeted in this fallen world. Our leaders are targeted by demonic forces who desire to oppress and suppress the gospel message. Any honest look at world history exposes that satanically energized persecution of the message of Jesus Christ. People wonder why Christians are susceptible to conspiracy theories. It's because any honest look at the Bible and history reveals that we live in a world filled with demonic activity who conspire among the kings and leaders of all nations to twist and destroy the gospel of Jesus Christ. They may not even realize that they're doing it because it is the spirit of the age. This is the spiritual war that's raging all around us. In fact, the phrase used in verse 14 where it says that demonic spirits get them to assemble for battle, that word translated there for, that, that says for battle should really be for the war. The great war is the implication there. 
It's a reference to the great end-time spiritual war that's been raging since all authority in heaven and on earth was given to Christ. And his kingdom began breaking into this world via his people spreading the good news of the gospel. That's why we are told to live wisely, right? To realize that this world is conspiring and it's conspiring on both aisles or sides of the political aisles. It's conspiring in every aspect of our lives. This world is filled with frogs and deception. And that is why Ephesians 5, verse 15 through 17 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And it's also why Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 13 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So it's not up to us. You think this is all up to you and how smart you're going to be? You're just going to be an anxiety-ridden mess in this world. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, which are everywhere. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So this passage is an eye-opener to the realities that we live in even now. And it's a supernatural war, right? So catch this. This thing is spiritual. So just because something supernatural happens, it doesn't mean it's from God. Right? Just because you're sitting there thinking, God, should I divorce my wife? And then you pull up to the stoplight and there's a sign there that says, need a divorce lawyer? Right? You're like, God is answering my prayers. No, he's not. Right? Like, that's not what that means. Just because it's supernatural doesn't mean it's from God. This battle, this war is a spiritual one. That comes from people suppressing anything spiritual, and then the moment they realize that there, are, there is more than just what we can taste, touch, see, feel, and smell, then you're like, anything spiritual must be my guide. No. Opposite, right? So this passage is an eye-opener to this reality. And over and over and over again, we see that the false prophet uses signs and wonders to deceive people. You need to realize the weapons of warfare that the enemy uses are ultimately deception. He is the father of lies. This is why Holy Spirit-filled gospel community that's rooted and established upon the word of God and the gospel of grace in spirit and in truth is so important. Right? This is why the local church is so significant and matters so much. Like, we're not just partnering together to make your life better. Like, I hope that it does. But we, you need to realize that we're uniting for battle against a very real enemy, behind enemy lines in a very real war. This is who we are. This is what we do. Right? So we suit up in the armor of the Lord. We're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, and we're operating according to his will and his ways, not our own. We conquer the enemy by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony, and we conquer by laying our lives down for the sake of Christ, not by laying the lives of others down in the name of Christ, right? We don't do it like the world does it. We do it according to the word of God and the ways of God for the will of God and the glory of God and the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven, in Virginia Beach as it is in heaven. Also, I love this. One of the things about ancient armor, many of you may know this, but um, one of the things about ancient armor is that it often required somebody else to help you put it on. I think that's cool, Right? Like there's a whole sermon here about why God sends his disciples out in pairs and why community is so important. And yes, Christian, you're in the midst of this war, right? There's no such thing, by the way, as lone wolf Christianity. That's just someone who is, that's just a sheep isolated from the flock and vulnerable to the wolves. That's all that is. And somebody's like, well, my relationship with God is personal. What? 
What? What Bible are you reading? That's, that's the enemy who's in the shadows going, come here, little Lammy. Oh, yeah, you're strong enough. You can fend for yourself. Come on over here. Boom. That's what that is. The good shepherd says, stay with the flock and lean into your shepherd as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as we navigate Armageddon, right? And yes, again, you are in the midst of this war. You're not whisked away from the pitch of battle. You are on the front lines. Why else would Jesus need to speak courage into his people in the midst of it all? Look at verse 15. Look at it. Behold. Say, behold. I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So Jesus interjects here in the midst, right in the middle of his vision, to encourage his people who are in the midst of this battle. He says, stay awake. He says, stay vigilant. He says, don't give in to the satanic lullaby of the culture that's lulling you to sleep as though none of this matters. He says, lean in, right? He says, I know John's preaching a little long, but lean in, right? Because it matters. And then he says, keep your clothes on. What? Like, what? Why is he like, it's like, it's, it's like so important. He's like, stay awake, stay vigilant, and keep your pants on. This is an allusion, actually, to Adam and Eve. Remember the first thing that happened when they disobeyed God and ate from the tree that God told them not to is that they realized they were naked and exposed, right? So they covered themselves with leaves to hide themselves and to hide their shame. And then God has them sacrifice an animal or, or he kills an animal and, and spills its blood and he uses the skins of that animal to cover them, to clothe them, to hide their shame, Right? And it was all a prophetic picture of what Jesus would do for them and what he has done for us at the cross. As they looked forward to what Jesus would do, we look back to what Jesus would do, and it becomes the center of all eternity. This is the gospel, that God became a man. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserve to die, and he conquered death in the grave that paved the way and then paved the way to eternal life through the resurrection with God the Father, and that eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die, but it starts now through his indwelling Holy Spirit that comes and invigorates and animates and absolutely recreates, renewing each person to be a new creation in his spirit, in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. You are clothed in his righteousness. That's what we see. So this is why throughout the New Testament, Christians are referred to as those who are clothed in Christ. They are clothed in his righteousness. And over and over and over again, we're told to actively put on Christ. He is our hiding place. He is our refuge. In him, we have security. In him, we have salvation. He is our firm rock. He is our strength. He is our refuge. He is the unconditional love armor that we are able to put on in the midst of the height of the battle. And this speaks to how we're called to fight in this war. Right? Colossians 3. This is what Paul wrote to the Colossians church or the, the, the church in Colossae. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I just read this at a wedding last night or yesterday. 
and it applies directly to the covenant love of marriage that is expressing the love that God has for his people in marriage. And you know what else it's expressed in? The church. Our covenant community. That's what we're seeing here. That's, this is how we fight our battles, right? Again, this is how we conquer the enemy. Just like Revelation 12, verse 11 said that we would by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. It's a people so secure in the love and grace of God that we're willing and able to consider others first, that we're able to, that we love when others don't, that we forgive when others can't, and that we unify when others won't. This is his people. This is his covenant community. And when we fail at doing all of that, which we eventually will, we turn to Jesus, confess our mess, and let him lavish the grace that we need to live and love and fight like him. And as we receive that grace and express that grace, we demonstrate that grace to a people in need of that grace. Earlier we looked at Ephesians 6 that told us that this battle is not with flesh and blood. The literal translation is actually blood and flesh. It's actually flip-flopped in order. It's actually saying it's, it's blood and our, our battle's not with blood and flesh, which gives a clearer picture of pitched hand-to-hand combat. Like it's like a picture of like a bloody Roman soldier in front of you or like a Viking, right? He's covered in blood and he's like coming at you. He's saying that's not the kind of battle that we're in. He says this battle, this war, is ultimately with spiritual forces of evil that are animating all of this mess. That doesn't mean that people aren't responsible for their wickedness, right? But it does mean that Christ came to save them from their wickedness. Just like he came to save you from yours. I'm reminded here that uh, uh, I have a roommate um, who actually, he was mugged. (laughs) I got time for this story, it's coming. Um, he was mugged, and as he was mugged, uh, he, he literally, the guy, as the guy's, like, taking his wallet and all the things, he's, like, talking to him, and he's like, man, yeah, of course, you know, here's, here's my money, like, you know, what, how did you get here? Like, what brought you to this place in your life? Like, how, how did you get this low? Like, he just loved on the guy, and the guy, like, starts crying, <laughs> and my, my roommate ends up taking him to dinner. God gave him his stuff back. He takes him to dinner and preaches the gospel to the guy. The guy's like, man, I'm sorry. It's just been a really hard time and blah, blah, blah. That's called loving your enemies. That's called seeing through to the root, right? That's called realizing that there's a lot more going on, and it takes a secure person to do something like that. Joran Donovan. Love that guy. Anyways. He told me that story, and I was like, you're like the only guy I feel like I can pull that off. But he did. So it means, again, this is Jesus calling us to love our enemies and to bring them the healing gospel of Christ that can transform even those who are hostile to Jesus into brothers and sisters. Right? We see this throughout the scriptures because, again, our ultimate battle is not with blood and flesh. It's with evil spiritual forces behind it all. So the question then is now, Again, how do we fight? How shall we live then in this world of warfare? And here again, we are to clothe ourselves in Christ. Ephesians 6, 13 through 20 says this. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the word of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert. Say, wake up! With all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, which means prayer. And he says, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, I love this. 
<laughs> it's, I, do you know that in all the difficulties that the Apostle Paul faced, I mean, this guy was tortured, he dealt with hardship, he was imprisoned, he's talking about himself being enchained, in chains right here, right? Not once does he ever ask them to pray for his deliverance so he can go sit on his couch and pet his dog at home. Not once does he pray for deliverance or rescue. Not once. He always asks them to pray for his boldness to declare the gospel in every situation and circumstance. You know why? Because my man knew he was at war. He knew that there was a battle waging and he was on the front lines. He knew it wasn't about his comfort. He knew that it was about his king. And he's sitting there chained to a Roman guard who has to sit there for eight hours and listen to the Apostle Paul talk about Jesus. Get that image. Like, they're just cycling guards through this guy. Paul's, like, leading some guy to Christ. And he's like, okay, next. Like, that's the, that's the situation that he was in. And he's like, just pray for boldness for me to speak and how to articulate it. Man, that, I pray, is our prayer language, man, that we are asking for one another to pray for us that we might speak as we ought to speak with boldness and in love and in truth and this grace that goes forward and eradicates the spiritual forces of darkness that saturate our city. So now, Finally, just in case you're still not convinced that Armageddon is a spiritual war, we're given the Hebrew name for the battleground as Armageddon, okay? Many have called attention to the fact that Armageddon, again, is a reference to the plain of Megiddo in northern Israel, right? So this is like a, this is a physical battle that's going to take place sometime in the future, right? Because it's at a physical, real place, right? In fact, even Megiddo, it's like, you know, like hundreds of wars were fought there. I think over 200 extremely important battles were fought on the plain of Megiddo. For the first century church, a reference to Megiddo would have been like a reference to the Alamo or to Gettysburg or to Normandy. It would have reminded them of the important battles that had shaped history. But the literal Hebrew here is Har-Megeddon, which means Mount Megiddo. Har means mountain in Hebrew. But there ain't no mountain there. It's a plain. It's not a mountain. There's never been a mountain there. There's a little man-made tell. That's what it's called. It's like a tell. But it's definitely not a mountain. And also, there's barely enough room for one army, much less all the armies of the world. So what's going on here? This is more reason not to take the battleground of Mount Megiddo literally, because there is no literal mountain. So what's being conveyed? What's it saying? Well, mountains in the Bible almost always represent seemingly immovable evil forces or earthly kingdoms like obstacles between God and his people. You grab that stepladder for me, Dane. Like they, they are presented throughout Scripture as the massive immovable obstacles that must be overcome in order to get to God. Here's my mountain. Right? So God is up at the top of this mountain. Maybe I should just, you know. And um, I got to get to... God, and I've got this mountain to climb to get there, right? We see this over and over and over again through the Old Testament. Abraham had to climb Mount Moriah. Moses had to climb Mount Sinai. Elijah had to climb Mount Carmel. Zion and the temple of God in Jerusalem are situated on top of a mountain. In the Old Testament, the temple was place, was the place that you came to meet with God and offer sacrifice. And it took great effort. And even once you got to the top, there was still a veil of separation. Like, you're trying, you're striving. You got your lamb ready to sacrifice, you're climbing, you're going through journeys, and you're like, God, I got to get there, and you just can't get to the top. It's like you're trying to get there, but this mountain is just too much to overcome. Humanity's been trying to overcome this obstacle since the beginning. People even tried to build a tower big enough to get to God in their own strength. It was called the Tower of Babel, and it didn't work out for them, Right? They were trying to be like God, to reach God by their own strength, and they couldn't. He had to come down to us. See, this is why it's so crucial that God comes to us in Christ Jesus, because there was no way for us to overcome the spiritual mountain that stands between us and God. You can't. can't make it. He had to come to us to dwell with us as Emmanuel, which means God with us. During the week um, leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus and his disciples were 
staying in a city outside of Jerusalem called Bethany. And it was a small town to the east of Jerusalem where many outcasts and unclean people lived. There was actually a leper colony there as well who were literally not allowed in Jerusalem because they were unclean. They were sort of ostracized from the clean or the holy people of God and definitely from the temple area and the presence of God. And it's interesting, and I love the fact that that's where Jesus stayed. Isn't that cool? But from, from Bethany, you couldn't even see the temple because of the Mount of Olives. There was this big mountain. So if you were looking to Jerusalem from Bethany, you can't even see the temple because there's this big mountain that stands in the way. And so to get from the outcast city to the temple, you had to go up and over this mountain. In fact, in the last week of Jesus' life, he and his disciples make that trek a lot. And from, from there, one day, just a few days before Jesus was about to be crucified for the sins of the world, Jesus and his disciples were headed to the temple, and he stops at the foot of the Mount of Olives, and he looks at that mountain that stood between the temple of God, which represented the presence of God on the earth, and the unclean people. And in Mark eleven twenty three, 23, he says this. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now let that sink in. Let that visual sink in. Like most people hear that and they read that and they go, man, whatever, if I just believe, I can make anything happen. I can manifest God's blessings. I mean, the universe is blessing. I mean, the, I can just manifest what I want and claim it. God will do it. It's not what that verse is talking about, right? Jesus is telling us that our faith has the capacity to throw the mountain of separation between God and the unclean into the sea. And remember, there's no ocean in Jerusalem. There's no ocean even near Jerusalem. The sea represented this realm of evil and chaos for them. That's important. So he was saying that it's by faith in Christ that all the seemingly immovable obstacles between God and humanity will be thrown into the abyss where they belong. It's not overcome by human effort but by faith in the work of Christ. We even try to take faith and make it a human effort, don't we? I'm going to just believe. I'm believing for that house. That mountain that's in front of me is the down payment, and I'm believing that God is just going to throw it into the sea. What? That is not what this is talking about. Now, God, like, Pray for them. Like, that's great. God loves those things, and he can do stuff like that. That's fantastic. I'm not saying don't pray that. God loves you. He wants to prosper you, all the things, right? But that's not what it's talking about. That's not some magical incantation that you draw on here, right? It's, it, that's, again, it's not overcome by human effort, but by faith. We're talking about the obstacles between God and his people, that Jesus himself is Every promise of God answered with yes and amen. He is everything that you long for. He is everything that you were looking for in that house to satisfy you. Guess what? It ain't going to satisfy you. You're just going to want a bigger house. He is the quench to our thirst. Only him. And we don't come to him by human effort. He comes to us. And we get there by faith in the work of Christ alone. Hundreds of years before this, the prophet Zechariah prophesied in Zechariah 14, verse 4. And on that day, which by the way, guys, the fact that this is even here and here hundreds of years before this, if you don't believe any of this stuff is real, what do you do with this? Nugget, sorry. <laughs> the word of God is amazing. Hundreds of years before this was what was written. Verse 4. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. Get this image. So if here's the temple... And this moves this way, and this moves that way because of the presence of Jesus. It creates, then, a pathway 
That, that, he turns that mountain, when Jesus' feet land on that mountain, it's the presence of Christ that turns that mountain into a pathway from the temple or the presence of God that leads out to Bethany, the unclean, and all the nations of the world. Do you see this? Jesus provides access to the presence of God by crushing the mountain of separation. That's the picture being painted for us. All our striving to ascend the presence of God is accomplished because heaven has come down to us in Christ Jesus. Right? We can't strive enough to get to God, but God has come down to us in Christ. This is why, again, in Matthew 17, Jesus tells his disciples, with the faith of the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Because it's not about the quantity of your faith. It's about the object of your faith, which is Jesus Christ. Then all the obstacles between us and the Lord are removed. All the spiritual mountains of separation are thrown into the sea. This is why we just sang, O God of Jacob, fierce and great, you lift your voice to speak. The earth it bows and all the mountains move into the sea. O Lord, you know the hearts of men and still you let them live. O God who makes the mountains melt, come wrestle us and win. Like, we're done building our towers of Babel. We're done trying to achieve our way into heaven. We're done trying to do things our own way. We admit that we don't have what it takes, but we believe that Jesus does. And that, that we can rest in his embrace and trust in his will and his ways and surrender to his lordship. Because heaven has come to us in Jesus Christ. Like, I didn't find the only way to heaven through Jesus Christ. Heaven found the only way to me in Jesus Christ. That's huge. It's a false gospel to think I found the only way. You, you heard this image? Like the, there's, you know, God's at the top of the mountain and there's many paths to God. It's everybody trying to get up that mountain. I'm going to get to Jesus via Muhammad over here and I'm going to get to Jesus through Krishna over here. I mean, God through Krishna over here, and it's all these things. And, and then even some Christians, man, this is works righteousness. People are like, nah, you know, it's, it's through Jesus. You got to be like Jesus and live like Jesus. And if you're like Jesus enough, then you can make it to the top of the mountain. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus came to this mountain, and he took the mountain by the blood of the lamb, by his sacrifice, and he threw this beast into the sea. And he broke a couple chandeliers in the process. That is the gospel of grace. And that no matter what it feels like, no matter what you're dealing with, that's where we are. Because heaven has come to us in Jesus Christ. So we sing, far be it from me to not believe, even when my eyes can't see. And this mountain that's in front of me, this thing that feels like I'm distant from him, this thing that feels like I have to grasp, I have to try, I have to put fig leaves on, I have to find my affirmation in my wife or my career or my security and my finances or all of the things that I try and find that I am beloved and all these things that are lies and are gonna wither, that ultimately they are just you trying to climb a mountain on your own. All the while, Jesus has said, I have come down to you. I'm here. And so this mountain that's in front of me will be thrown into the midst of the sea, and through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you, and through it all, through it all, it's well with my soul. Like, no matter what's going on, you just stop, and you realize he's with me now. What am, like, that whole thing where it's like, if I can just get there, if I can just achieve this, if I can just get past this day or get to that place in life, then I'll be whole, then I'll be at peace, then I'll be fulfilled. No, you won't. He's here now. This isn't talking about obstacles that get in the way of your own greatness. It's talking about obstacles between you and the present glory of God. So many people let the enemy twist this into meaning that God will help you build your own tower of Babel to get to God or to be like God. And that's garbage. That's the battle of lies that we're actually in. This is not about getting your breakthrough. This is about receiving the fact that God has already broken through in Christ, and his grace is sufficient for you. It's about trusting him and resting in him, even when he feels like, you know, there's these mountainous obstacles between you and the Lord, and the reality is that he is with you. And on this side of heaven, though, we live in the already but not yet. He's already crushed the spiritual mountain of separation, and yet his fullness has not come physically. This is important, because this is why 
This is called Mount Megiddo. This is what's being presented to us in Armageddon or Mount Megiddo. Armageddon is the last spiritual mountain that stands between physical creation and the fullness of the physical presence of God. For believers, it's already been conquered spiritually, and yet we still must battle until he returns fully and physically. For now we see him in part, but then we will see him face to face, and he will crush the mountains. Mount Megiddo will be done for when he comes. That's what we see in the seventh bowl. And it's not like there's this struggle between Jesus and the world. It's not. It's like Jesus comes, everybody's dead. That's how it is. It's like, and Jesus is here, and river of blood. It's not a struggle that's going to start sometime. It's a battle that's being finished, right? For now, we see him in part, but then we will see him face to face. Our greatest battle now is walking by faith, not by sight. This is why we remind ourselves that the mountain of separation has been thrown into the sea, that he is with us, that this is the truth of our salvation. This is the righteous security that we clothe ourselves in. This is the suit of armor and the shield of faith that extinguishes the lies of the enemy that are hurled at us. And this is the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit that takes this gospel fight to the enemy. Again, it won't manifest physically until he returns, but the victory has already been won. His kingdom is breaking into this world through the spread of the gospel spiritually, but when he returns, it'll break in physically. For now we walk by faith. Then we'll see it by sight. For now we wage war on the darkness by his spirit as children clothed in Christ and armed with this gospel. Let's pray.